Our scripture reading today comes from selected verses from Exodus 3, 5, 6, 7, and 9. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to them, say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on your, you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is God's word. <clears throat> Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Uh, good to see you. What a great day. What a great day. Lots of Jesus points ready for you today. You came to church this morning. 
Jesus points, cha-ching, cha-ching. We're going to ask you to come to church twice on a rainy, cold day in Florida. Lots of Jesus points. So come tonight. I'm joking. Come tonight, and uh, we don't believe in there's some. We don't believe in Jesus points. I should say that for the guests here. It's just an inside joke. Um, but do you, I hope you will come back out tonight uh, to be with us at five o'clock? It is one of the favorite things that we do all year. It'll be a lot of singing, a lot of people. So brave the weather. Uh, as an encouragement, if nothing else, if you love me, come because. I'm in charge of that meeting, and so it's, it's just fun to have all my friends there with me, okay? So please come. We continue this morning in a series uh, in this book of Exodus. We're going to be doing this through Easter time, and uh, this is a really, a really big text, isn't it? Uh, a really heavy text, and we decided to do uh, the whole thing in one shot, uh, and so lots of, uh, it's a very long passage. We tried to narrow it down, so Susan, thank you for bearing with that. Uh, and, uh, and there's just a, a lot of, oh, wow, kind of moments as you read through uh, this, this story. It is the story of the plagues that God is bringing on Egypt. It's a series of ten plagues, and, and if you're not familiar, let me just say that I'll, I'll just kind of outline them very quickly. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a back and forth between the God of Israel and the, the Pharaoh in Egypt who's been holding his people captive in slavery, and God is coming to redeem with an outstretched arm of power, and these plagues are the signs of his power to bring his people out from underneath their slavery. And so the first plague is the Nile River being turned to blood. And then the second plague after that is that the frogs come out of the Nile and they go everywhere in the bedrooms, into the kitchen, into the food, into the ovens. Uh, it's pretty gross. The third plague is a, is a, a plague of gnats or mosquitoes uh, that would come and, and bite and just kind of, you know, call it, if you've ever been, you know, at a soccer field in a spring evening when the mosquitoes come out right after right after you know night night falls you know it's just you can't even you just can't even sit down because they're so annoying fourth plague are were uh, flies came something like horse flies flies that bit something like that which led to the fifth plague which was a disease that fell upon the livestock so that the livestock of Israel were were killed uh, and then the sixth plague, boils broke out on both the livestock and the people, these painful sores that caused a lot of pain and, and grief. The seventh plague is a plague of hail. It kind of gets taken up a notch there. Hail falls from heaven that destroys whatever's left of the harvest and the livestock. And as if that's not enough, the eighth plague, there are locusts that come to finish off the crops and cause famine among, among the people. The ninth plague is a plague of darkness, but it's something more than darkness. It's like uh, the wording there in the original language is, is like a darkness you can feel. Do you know what I mean? Like a deep darkness, like a darkness that isn't just dark skies. It's like a, a pervasive, like foreboding darkness that fell for three days upon the land leading. And we're going to talk in detail next week about the tenth plague, which was God's ultimate act of judgment against this people in the death of the firstborn sons of, of Egypt. And from there, he brings his people out. But what you see here in all of this, you know, these long stories and texts here is God is sending Moses to confront Pharaoh with his demand. That Pharaoh give up the people who are gods by right so that they might serve him and worship him. No longer serving Pharaoh, but serving the Lord who is their rightful master. And the question that hangs in the air as you read these texts is, will Pharaoh obey? And if you know, you know there's a lot of going back and forth about this, isn't there? Will Pharaoh obey? Well, it looks like he will, and then it looks like he doesn't, and it kind of, there's a, there's a wrestling match that takes place. 
So verse 2 of chapter 5, if you can find it there in what's printed, who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey his voice? That really is our focus this morning. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And there's a back and forth struggle because we're getting a picture of what it's like to obey God for all of us. In all of us, there seems to be this back and forth struggle of trying to wrestle our hearts into obedience. And so God sends a judgment and then out of distress, Pharaoh says, okay, you're right. Yeah, you can go. You can do what you want. I recognize and admit that this is what should happen. And then the plague stops and he relents and he pulls them back in. It's, you know, it's the whole, as soon as I think I'm out, they pull me back in kind of thing, right? The Godfather reference, if you get that. I mean, they, you know, they can't get away from his clutches. And so uh, it's this high drama, high tension situation. Now, it's important to remember when these stories were first written and to whom, because that's where we find the, the, the meaning of what's being told to us here. It's a basic principle of Bible interpretation. And we believe, I think we've said this, and if not, say it now, we believe that, that Exodus as we have it today was written to the next generation of people who were brought out of slavery but then wandered in the wilderness on their way to the promised land for 40 years. And so these stories were written to that new generation of people to remind them of these events that had taken place and to call from them the same kind of obedience that the original people participating in these things would have had. So they needed to ask the question, would, will we obey? Who is the Lord that we will obey? Will we obey the one who's being revealed to us here? So the nation of Israel who, by the way, was called Israel because, do you know what the word means? It means those who wrestle with God. Much like Pharaoh's wrestling with him here, had to wrestle with that question. They needed to answer the question, who is the Lord, that we should obey him and do what he's called us to do? So these stories were told to answer that question and to call out their obedience. And so because we're here millennia later, it's, we have to answer the question too, and these stories are crafted to answer the question and to call out from you and me our unrivaled, unyielding obedience to the Lord. Will we obey? Who is the Lord that we should obey is the question that we have to answer this morning. And so here there are three things really that we see from this text that help us get to an answer to that question. The first thing the text does is it shows us why we don't obey God. The second thing it does is it shows us why we should because of what's revealed about him here. But then thirdly, and where we want to end is, the text also, I think, points to how we can obey him. And those are the three points in the outline that I've given you, if you see it there in the worship folder in the insert that, we, that we've given. Uh, so why we don't obey God, why we should obey him, and how we can obey him, all of that's in this text. And so let's walk through it together this morning, if you would, beginning with just this question, why why don't we obey God? Why do we find it so hard to obey him? Why is obedience so difficult uh, and as it was for Pharaoh here as it is for most of us? And the answer to that question is, is that we don't obey him because we don't know him. We don't obey him because we don't know him. Or we should say we don't obey him because even though we may know him, there's still ways that we know but don't know about him. That is, the sin underneath every sin is unbelief. Now, we say this all the time, that every behaving problem <clears throat> is a believing problem. Or turn that around to say that the key that unlocks power for spiritual transformation is to come to know and to believe and to rely on God's love and power, that his arm really is an arm that stretches out to save. Who is the Lord? That's Pharaoh's response in his first confrontation with Moses in chapter 5. So look there, verse 2. 
Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And that's the problem. But it's not just a problem for Pharaoh. It's a problem for the Israelites as well and for us. They did not know God either. And sometimes we act as if we don't as well. So down in chapter 6, verse 9, it says that after um, Moses went to Pharaoh and was so soundly defeated and rejected and Pharaoh didn't listen to him, he went to the nation of Israel expecting to at least be received by them. But we're told that he was just as soundly defeated and that they didn't listen to him either. So chapter 6, verse 9, it says he goes to Israel after having been to Pharaoh, and it says they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit. So you have these two groups here. You have Pharaoh, who is proud and hard-hearted in his unbelief, and then you have Israel, who is despairing and cynical after 400 years you know, in, as slaves in Egypt. And what we're, what we're being told, the story is being crafted to show us that both, both of those stances are unbelief. I mean, if you're proud, you may know God, but you're acting like you don't know him. Because if you really know him, you know, once you know him, there's nothing, there's no shred of pride left in you. Once you know his grace, once you know his power, once you know how, how big he is and how small you are in comparison to how big he is, there, there's no possible way to, to be left prideful. But if you're despairing and cynical and having lost all hope, then you may know about him in some way, but the question kind of remains, do you know him personally? Because if you know his heart, if you know his love, if you know the, the, the legacy of his commitment to his people, then no matter how long you've had to wait, no matter how hard whatever you're going through is, it still should not lead you to despair and to lose heart because he's a God who saves. Always. Without fail. Now, we need to take a look at each of those for just a minute. So if you would just look at with me, at both sides of this for just a second. So there's Pharaoh. Let's talk about him for just a minute. And obviously he dominates the drama in these chapters. So in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh was uh, a mediator between the gods and the people. So if the people were down here and the gods were up here, Pharaoh was kind of in the middle. And his job was to learn the will of the gods and then to use whatever political power and influence and resources he had to make sure that their will was done on earth as it was being done in the heavens. And so when he says to Moses, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice. I don't know the Lord. He is actually being quite sincere. He knows the other gods. He knows the pantheon of gods in Egypt, but he has never heard of, or he truly does not know this Yahweh that Moses speaks of. And so the problem comes, though, is that the story unfolds, and as the Lord begins to flex his muscles, proving his supremacy over the gods of Egypt, proving that he is the true God and not the gods that Pharaoh has worshipped and served, even then... Instead of coming to his senses and falling on his face, he becomes even more proud and even more hard-hearted. And the question for us, I think, as we reflect on that part of the story is, how do we, or let's just say it this way, do you, do you ever react to the way of God's working in your life like Pharaoh did? With a hard heart. When, when, when the Lord starts to wrestle control from you, do you open your hands and let him, or do you hold to control as tightly as you can? How are you like him in his unbelief? Well, but if that's not you, then don't think you're off the hook, because they're the Israelites too. And they didn't know the Lord either, though their unbelief looked very different. Even as the plagues unfold, and God begins to prove himself, 
Even as all of these things start to happen, they're slow to listen to Moses and believe his message, we're told, verse 9 of chapter 6, because of their broken spirit. So their experience there had broken them. They'd become cynical and unbelieving. And, and honestly, who could really blame them? 400 years of slavery. 400 years. It's a really long time. Life has a way of killing the dreams we dream. And it's so easy. It's too easy to become cynical and to lose heart. And so when God shows up saying through Moses in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm, right? I'm the God of your fathers, and I have come to bring you up out of Egypt and deliver you from slavery and to redeem you and to take you for my people. Instead of being met with shouts of praise and adulation, and finally we've been waiting so long, what we're told is that they thought, yeah, right, we've heard this before. Nothing ever changes. And it can happen to us too, see. You can lose your joy. Because when life gets hard and it goes on for a long time, you can give in, give in to despair and stop hoping and stop, stop believing that, that God cares. Stop believing that, that his heart is for you. Stop believing that he saves. And so the other question we ask is, do you ever react to the way God is working in your life like the Israelites? By giving in to that despair because it's unbelief. Are you there today? So what's happening here is that God is coming to these people, to Pharaoh and his hard-heartedness, and to the Israelites and their cynicism and despair, and he's coming to make himself known. But he's coming to make himself known universally. And, and you see, it really is the feature of the, te of the text as you go through it. Uh, and he's so clear. I wonder if you caught it as Susan read to us just a minute ago. But to Pharaoh, he's making himself known. He says down in chapter 9, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and you will know. To Egypt, he's making himself known. So chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. To Israel, he's making himself known. He says to them in chapter 6, verse 7, I'm the God of your fathers, and I'm coming to bring you out, and you will know, you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But not only to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to Israel, he, in these, in these stories, in these miraculous saving acts, he is making himself known to the whole world and to us 4,000 years later. Because here's what he says to Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 16. He says, I've raised you up for this purpose, to show my power, to show you my power, but also so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And this idea is so pervasive that it explains, actually, the parts of the story that are the hardest to accept. Because I don't know about you. Anybody else? I mean, there's some, there's some things that are really hard to make sense of here, isn't there? Some, hard, some, some parts that are really hard to accept. And actually, what I've just said is the explanation for why the story goes that way. Let's talk about a few of those. Well, one, for one thing, why would God allow 400 years of slavery in the first place? I mean, surely he could have done this another way. I mean, if the goal was to get Israel to the promised land, then he could have done it with all, without all of this mess, couldn't he have? I mean, couldn't he have just brought them right in instead of sending them to Egypt for 400 years? I mean, it opens up much bigger questions. I mean... This is, we, you know, in our house, we really kind of, in some of these smaller questions, they lead to bigger questions. And so we'll go around saying, you know, why, and if, the, well, why the fall? 
Why, why did God allow the world? Why couldn't God have just come and put Adam and Eve there and it'd all be okay and everything's great? But then things get messed up and we know that God had the power to do something about it and he didn't or whatever the case might be. So why, why does life have to work? Why do things have to be so hard? Why does he have to take so long in doing the things he promises to do? Why does it have to be this way? And the only answer that we're given by reflecting on the Bible, but also as Christians have thought about these things over the centuries, is the only answer is, is that we would know less of God if it were not that way. If there were no fall, if there were no struggle, if there were no sin, if there were no 400 years of slavery, then we would know less of him. Without all of that, we would not know his grace and his mercy. We would not know his patience. We would not know the extent of his love. And without 400 years of slavery, Israel would not have known him as the redeemer that he is. And he wants to be known. And then there's the question of Pharaoh's hard heart. It says, on the one hand, it's a tricky part of the text. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then there are times where it just says his heart was, his heart was hard. And so, you know, you're left to kind of say, well, which is it? And the theological answer is that it is never one without the others. That every time you read that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and every time you read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's the same thing. What we're given in the text is not about Pharaoh's hard heart, is not how. Uh, we're given a very clear explanation of why, why it is that God allowed Pharaoh's heart to become hard so that this thing carried on longer than it needed to. And, and we're told very clearly, chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, it was so that God's signs and wonders could be multiplied in Egypt. So that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. So Pharaoh's hard heart, get this, okay? Pharaoh's hard heart, which drew out these, you know, things to where there wasn't just one or two or three plagues, there was ten. It, it allowed God to put forth more evidence of his power and his love for his people to see and to believe. And so he says, for this reason, I raised you up to show my power. And the Apostle Paul, of course, picks this up in Romans chapter 9 to say that God's great end in all things is God. But I've always been so struck by those verses in chapter 9. God says, after the six plagues, it's just before the seventh. He says, you know, we could have been done after just one plague. I could have ended this already. This could have been taken care of a long time ago. But I am intentionally drawing this out. Why? Because I'm making myself known. And ten plagues makes God more famous than just one. And it gives the people in the story and us more reason to believe the things that he says about himself to be true. These are really hard things, I know. But I think the point is made in some of this, but also just consider this. Why, why would Moses be God's choice in the first place? He is not the obvious choice. We're told in chapter 4, verse 10, that he's slow of tongue, and yet he is anointed the mouthpiece of God. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Of all of the people in the world that God would choose to be his mouthpiece in the greatest event that would ever happen in the life of his people, God chose as his mouthpiece the guy that could not talk. You with me? Why? Well, then there's the failure of chapter 5, 2, which we don't have time to go into in much detail. But needless to say, it did not go well. So God finally talks Moses into going. If you remember, there's this 
wrangling between them around the burning bush. And he finally says, okay, I'll go, fine. And then he goes and immediately goes into Pharaoh, and Pharaoh didn't listen. And then he leaves being with Pharaoh, and he goes to the Israelites thinking that at least they'll receive him, and they didn't listen to him either. And so he just suffers this incredible defeat in chapter 5, and something happens in Moses. He returns with his tail tucked between his legs, and listen to this. This is the chosen mouthpiece of God, the mediator, the great Moses, and yet after his first day on the job, he comes back in chapter 5, verse 22, and listen to where his heart's gone. He says, oh Lord, why have you done this evil thing to your people? And it's a turning point in the story because it's there, if you can find chapter 6, verse 1, it's the third paragraph on your page there. It's the turning point because then Yahweh's like, you know what, I'm done with this. Listen, listen here, buddy. This is basically the way you read it. He says, um, Moses, do you still think that this is about you? Do you really believe it's a matter of how well you're doing? You know, have you not come to the end of your strength yet? Have you come to the end of your strength? Oh, well, good. Now look at this, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, finally, finally, now that you understand it's not about you, it's about me. Now that you understand in your defeat that it's not about how you're doing, it's about what I'm going to do. Now that you understand uh, that, that your strength is not sufficient, chapter 6, verse 1, now you will see what I will do. As if God's saying, I want you and everybody else to see what I will do. And I want you and I want everybody else to know that I'm the one doing it, not you. God wants to be known. Because to make himself known is the greatest good that he can give. It's better than any earthly treasure. And it's why he takes his time. It's why he chooses to work with weak people and let them suffer defeat. It's why... Uh, it's why life is hard, and it's hard for long periods of time. It's why he waits. Did you notice? Did he, if you're reading community Bible reading with us this week, it's my favorite thing. In Genesis chapter 18, God comes to Abraham and Sarah after years and years of years of his promise kind of lingering over their lives, and finally he shows up and says, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son, and Sarah's in the other room, and do you remember? She laughs, and she says, what? Does God wait until I'm old and worn out to do this? And the answer is absolutely. That's the way it works. Because otherwise, you would not know that it's me doing it. And he wants to be known. We don't obey him because we don't know him. But we should obey him because of the way he makes himself known. In all of the scriptures, but especially here in this story. And that's the second thing. It will be much quicker, quicker from here. Uh, with these ten plagues, God is making himself known in a number of ways. He's making, making himself known as the only God. He's making himself known as the creator God. And he's making himself known as the personal God. And all three of those are important if we're going to be people who truly do obey him. So when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? He is not, he, he's, he's saying that not as an atheist. He is a religious pluralist. And religious pluralism says... You've got your gods, I've got my gods. Why should I obey what your God says when, you know, instead of obeying what my gods say? Who are you to say that your God has a claim on me? So religious pluralism has become just pluralism in our society. So now people don't even bring God into it. They just say, you know, you've got what you believe, and I've got what I believe, and we're all kind of gods unto ourselves, and we all decide these things, and no one should say that their belief is superior to anybody else's belief and that, that, that sort of talk is gospel in our culture today. And can I just be, as, try to be as kind and as firm to you as I can and say it's an absolute lie. It's a lie. It's wrong. 
Because of what you find here, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is being made known. He's making himself known as the only true God. And that's what these ten plagues reveal. Because what's happening as this, this story you know, kind of works itself out is they, they, God is systematically dismantling Egypt's religious pluralism. It actually starts in chapter 7, a part that isn't printed for you in verse 10, when Aaron, if you remember the story, he throws down a staff in front of um, Pharaoh, and the staff turns to a snake. If you saw the Prince of Egypt movie that Disney put out, you might remember the scene. And then the, the Egyptian magicians and priests, they, they're able to do the same thing. They throw their staffs down, and they become snakes as well. But then, of course, Aaron and Moses' snake swallows their snakes and, and, and eats them. And so it's a parable that's taking place there at the beginning of Moses' ministry. Snakes were a fundamental part of Egyptian religion. The sun god, who was the most important god, was depicted as a snake. And so more is happening than at first glance. God is asserting, the Lord is asserting his place over the gods of Egypt. And it continues in the plagues, so that most of these plagues are actually attacks on specific Egyptian gods. So you have the first plague, which is the turning the Nile river into blood, the, the goddess of fertility associated with the Nile, and I'm not kidding, uh, her name was Happy. And so Happy was this, this fertility god closely associated with the Nile, which was the source of abundance and life for all of Egypt. You can imagine why they would worship her. She was an important part of their worship. And the Lord smites the Nile at the very beginning, in effect, to prove that Happy is nothing before him. And then, of course, the sun and the moon are also worshipped as gods. The Egyptians believed that the sun god Ra sailed across the sky every day and then descended into the underworld before rising victorious the next day. And then the ninth plague where the sun and the moon are struck and there's absolute darkness. And it's the Lord saying, I have overthrown him. And so there's this cosmic battle. The real showdown is not between Moses and Pharaoh, but between the Lord and the gods of Egypt. And what is being revealed here is God saying by this you will know that I am the Lord and I will send my plagues on you so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth I am the one true God all the other gods are powerless before me to save that's what's happening here and so one application I would say to you that we have to be careful not to miss is if God worked this way to prove the idols of the Egyptians worthless and powerless then we can be assured that he will probably work in much the same way in our lives as well. And so can I give you a piece of advice? Don't harden your heart at the mercy of God when he comes into your life to prove your idols worthless. You should obey the Lord because he is the only true God, but you should also obey the Lord because he's the creator God, and that's how he's revealed here as well. Well, now, this comes out in another feature that scholars have noted. On the one hand, there's this cosmic battle raging. On the other hand, scholars have noted how unmiraculous and natural the plagues are. So if you think about it, the Nile River turns to blood, of course, destroying the ecosystem of the Nile. And then the ne ne very next thing that happens is the frogs come out of the river and they go into all of the, the houses. And then, you know, as that kind of subsides and the dead frogs get piled up in piles all throughout the land, the, the flies and the gnats you know, come, which bring disease so that the livestock begins to die and people break out with boils. So each plague kind of comes as a consequence of the one before it. Now, you may not be convinced. 
I don't know that I am completely, but it's so universally mentioned in the scholarship that I think there's something to it. But don't press the details. The point, I think, is this, that God could have done all of this with, with signs and wonders that weren't so easily explained through natural cause and effect. So why didn't he? And my answer is that maybe part of the message of what's being delivered here is the natural cause and effect of sin and rebellion against the Lord who is the creator. Let me explain. Scholars have noted also that Exodus 5 through 10 is an undoing of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So what's happening here in this story is that the world, as these plagues unfold, the world is reverting back to the pre-created chaos. The days of creation almost, almost literally are being, are being undone. It's like the days of creation in reverse until you get to the end in the ninth plague, when the darkness comes down upon the earth and you realize, holy cow, we're right back where we started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, before God created, when the world was without form and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And so if the true God is the creator God, then to obey him is to enter into the flourishing and the abundance that characterize those first two chapters of Genesis. But to disobey him is to open yourself up to the chaos and ruin of the pre-created world. God's law is not arbitrary. He made Pharaoh, in fact, and so he does have a claim on Pharaoh, and he made us. He made us in all things to work a certain way, and when we disobey, we're violating the very fabric of the world and of our own being. So C.S. Lewis said that the real tragedy of man is that we, he defines sin as trying to find a happiness apart from God, and he said the, the, the sad thing about that is, the tragedy of it is, we spend our whole lives trying to find something that doesn't exist. There is no such thing. There is no flourishing outside of what God has ordered. So, And you know this. We know this to be true. I mean, if you go to the doctor... And, and she tells you you have high blood pressure, and she puts you on a strict diet, right? No fatty foods, no, no sodium, and basically, if it tastes good, spit it out because it's going to kill you or whatever the, you know, whatever the case might be. But you decide, you know what? Thank you, but no thank you, and you ignore the advice. You're trampling on your own being, and there will be breakdown. God's authority is, is exactly like that, but a thousand times more so because... He didn't just study the human body like the doctor did. He made it. And he not only knows the physical fabric of your life, but the emotional and the spiritual and the relational too. So his commands are not arbitrary. Everything he commands reflect the way that we've been created. God says, honor your father and mother. Listen, there's some kids in the room. Kids, the Lord says, honor your father and mother. If you don't, you will never be happy. He says, don't commit adultery. And it may seem exciting. It may feel like the grass is greener. Can I just say it isn't? Ever. He says, don't let anything be more important to you than I am. Because if you do, it will ruin you. If work becomes more important and you spend years overworking, you'll lose. You'll lose. You may succeed at work, but you'll lose your physical and emotional health in the process or maybe even your family. If you approach spiritual things casually, your life won't work. You're a spiritual being. You're a soul that will last forever. And if you neglect your soul, you will be turning back to dust. But the good news is is that the law of God is medicine. His commands are right. They revive the soul. They rejoice the heart. So you should obey the Lord, we're told here, because he is the true God, the only God but also because he's the creator God, but don't miss, and we're coming to the end here. Lastly, obey him because he is the personal God. He is a name. Notice the emphasis on the name. Moses asked, when I go 
to Egypt, and the people ask, who sent me? What do I tell them? And God gave him a name. He actually gave him two names there in chapter 3. He said, I am who I am, verse 14. And then he said in verse 15, say to them, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob sent you. This is my name forever, forever and thus I am to be remembered. But they had forgotten, see? The people had forgotten his name because that name, the Lord, that we're, that we're being told here is his covenant name. It's the reminder that he bound himself to the people that they were exclusively his and that he should be exclusively theirs, that he was not like the gods of Egypt, not like any other god, really, that he wants to be known personally. You can know him personally. You can have a relationship with him. You can walk and talk with him because he has a name. And, you know, I've learned, I've learned with my kids that our relationship and our connection, it's that that sustains their obedience to me as a parent. That disobedience in my children is not a sign of just how awful they are or how, how, you know, big sinners they are or whatever might be going on in their heart. More than anything else, their disobedience is a sign that somewhere there's a breakdown in the relationship. God wants us to obey him because we know him. Because we know his name. Because we know what he's like. Because we know his voice. And we obey him. And so we don't obey because we don't properly know him. We should obey because of the way he's made himself known as the only true God and as the creator God and as the personal God. But how? How can we know and obey him? Let's finish just with a couple of thoughts on that. How can we avoid unbelief? Either pride or despair. And it's, and it's funny how the Bible talks about this. In Galatians 4, for example, which Terry read a minute ago, Paul begins verse 9 by saying, you know, now that you've come to know God, and then he kind of interrupts himself in the middle of his thought, and he says, you know, well, now that you've come to know God, or rather, you've been known by God. Did you catch that? It's the same in 1 Corinthians 8, 3. If anyone loves God, Paul writes, he is known by God. So knowing God is being known by him. If you know God, it's because he knew you first. So salvation, we're told here, is not knowing and obeying God. It's being known by him. And so at one point in the story, uh, as you read along here, God makes a distinction. He says, this is chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. He says, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that you may know that I am the Lord. So th I, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. So he says, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to treat my people over here much differently than I'm treating um, the, the, the rest of the nation. And by this distinction that I make, you will know that I'm the Lord. So the plagues happened in all of Egypt, except on some cases where the Israelites lived. So God made this distinction. But what we're told very clearly is it wasn't based on their behavior. It was based on his covenant love. It, Israel was just as sinful as the rest of Egypt, and yet they were spared. Why? That's the, we're meant to ask that why. Why, why is it? How could, God, how could God do it this way? And, and the answer is because they were uniquely known and loved by the Lord. Because... In Genesis chapter 15, when God made a covenant with their father, Abraham, the whole basis of the covenant was he, he slaughtered animals and, and put them on both sides in a covenant ceremony. And he passed through the pieces to signify that if he broke covenant, it should be done to him like the other animals. And then when it was Abraham's turn, because both parties typically would walk through to say, I own my responsibility of this, God said, no, no, no. And Abraham didn't pass through the pieces, only God did. And here's what that meant. It was God saying, that, if I fail you, may I be cut into and cursed. But if you fail me, May I be cut into and cursed. I'm taking responsibility for your part, 
And I'm taking responsibility for my part of the relationship. I'm taking responsibility for me and for you too. And the plagues fell, fell on Egypt, but not on Israel, because centuries later, the darkness would come down again as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing the curse of the covenant because of our failure. And if you're here and if your faith is in Jesus, then God's judgment is truly upon the world, but it is not upon you because he was judged in your place. And the darkness doesn't fall upon you. It fell but, and it doesn't, but it doesn't fall upon you because it fell upon him. The curse, the plagues don't come because he has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That's our gospel. So how can you know and obey God? You look to Jesus. You look to the one that these stories pointed to. You look to him because he is the physical, living, breathing example of the heart of the Father. He is the evidence that God is as good as he is great, and he is also the one who makes it possible for us to know or rather, to be known by God himself. There's a place in Luke's gospel where Jesus sends his disciples out as they experience wild success. They preach great sermons, right? They had an evangelistic crusade, and it went really, really great. And they come back rejoicing in the success that they've experienced. And Jesus has to correct them. He says, listen, guys, this is Luke 10. Don't rejoice in your success. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't rejoice in your doing or in your knowing. Rejoice in being known. The true rejoicing is in, in being known, knowing that we're known by the Father. Is your faith in Jesus? If not, believe. Turn away from pride, turn away from despair, and believe. And here's what we're told. God will write your name in heaven with permanent marker. And then you can live in complete confidence and assurance and it's that confidence and assurance along with the humility that comes from knowing that it is all grace, that it's all God's doing, that it's all what God has done and not we have done. See, that's the knowing. Who is the Lord? What's your answer? Let's pray. So, Father, in just these few moments we have here at the end, we may not know how to answer that question. Would you come? And make yourself known to us. Would you come and uh, cause our hearts not to rush off to the next thing that's happening today, but to sit. And I pray we just have a moment here where we sit with that. Who is the Lord that we should obey him? We confess the ways though we come here every Sunday and though we do, we've done religious things, many of us all of our lives, how we still remain ignorant of you practically how we live as if you're not trustworthy as if you we as if you're not mighty to save forgive us what unbelief what what an affront what what utter rebellion against who you've made yourself known in the scriptures and in our lives to be to us and yet we persist so we would just cry out to you that we are slaves not to egyptian taskmasters we are slaves to our own pride and cynicism and despair we're chained up inside by these things would you come and would you break the chains of unbelief in our hearts? Would you increase our faith and then from that place of believing cause us to be people obedient for the sake of your great name because your name's at stake and you love your name and we should too. So for the sake of your great name, do this and then send us from this place for the sake of your name as obedient people bearing fruit that brings glory to you. What, that's our heart. Come and do that, even as we sing now among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So who is the Lord? That, in many ways, is the 
question that is going to be put to the test this week as we go. But who is he? He is the one who makes these promises to you in these words. That he says, I send you, but I don't send you alone. I promise to go with you. I send you not uh, just in your own strength, but with all of the hope and promise of my strength and my love for you. That's what these words mean. So receive them as a benediction. Then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.